the latest in agricultural media and some smart conversation. This is the Ag Communicators Network Podcast. Welcome to the Ag Communicators Network Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Navarro. On this episode, Kevin Volta, a professor and the chairman of the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida, joins me to talk about his recent receipt of the AAEA Distinguished Service Award. His communications career path hasn't been traditional. He's a scientist that discovered early on the power of delivering impactful messages, and he shares what it's like to have your career and reputation called into question while offering advice for communicating important messages in today's environment. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin, and I'd like to start by saying congratulations on receiving this year's Distinguished Service Award from AAEA. Well, that was really a surprise, and for me, when you look at the list of previous winners, it's uh, really an amazing club to be part of. How did you first learn that you had won the award? Wow, I I don't remember. I I I, I, I think it was because I got an invitation to the meeting. And, uh, and they said, you'll be recognized there. And I couldn't believe it because to me, I, you know, I never really feel that, um, I'm worthy of such distinctions because I just like to do what I do. And, uh, and I, I'm glad other people notice it really was very special. Well, it was well-deserved and maybe for our listeners who don't know you as well, um, can you kind of give them a glimpse of your career and your current role that led up to this award? Well, it's really a very unusual path. Um, I've always been interested in science, and my career came through uh, basically being a dishwasher in college that did a good job in the, in the lab's dishes, and they handed me some experiments, and I was hooked. And at the end of my undergraduate period, there was I had a job offer with a major ag company, and I really didn't like that environment. It wasn't working for me. It was seemed like too much wasted time. I couldn't stay all night and couldn't work weekends. So uh, they uh, they uh, it wasn't my wasn't a good fit. So the school I was at offered me a master's degree opportunity, which I was glad to take on. And then followed a, a research PhD after that, and then postdoc, and then faculty at University of Florida, uh, where I've been for 19 years. Excellent. And what um, do you teach at the University of Florida? I teach molecular biology and also uh, plant physiology, um, developmental molecular biology for graduate students. But I try really hard to teach some communications courses here and there, especially to scientists. And what about bringing um, the communication and the science together is important to you in advancing agricultural communications as a whole? Well, that, that's the big surprise, because when I was an undergraduate, I was one of very few scientists, if maybe the only scientist, to take, uh, to take part in intercollegiate competitive speaking and debate. And that was a really good training for me because I learned from the best folks in the business on how you frame a compelling argument and how you properly inform others of of general information and how to think on your feet while speaking. And those skills were probably the most valuable thing I learned in college. 
Um, the science is nice, but being able to communicate it was even better. And every grant proposal I wrote after that, every uh, any any proposal I put forward always had that very strong rhetorical backbone that came from a communications back background. And so now being able to share that with others is really important. And especially uh, not just students who are you know applying for med school or whatever and need to write strong letters, but um, our broader agricultural community, how do they tell their story? And our scientists in agriculture, how do you tell the story of science without just sticking with facts? I mean, not meaning to tell mm-hmm. <laughs> things mm-hmm. that aren't true, but just simply by not burying people in an avalanche of facts. How do we talk about what's important and why it's important to do what we do? Mm. And that's certainly become increasingly important with all of the misinformation that's out there and the um, sometimes negative press that gets put out there about agriculture. Um, so certainly important to, to be able to tell a story where readers tell or listen to a story where readers um, can connect with the message. It's very true. It's that we need to be in that space. And there's a lot of new research that's coming out more and more that says it's so vital for us not to ignore that opportunity to engage the uh, consumer, the curious person, the concerned person, and even the uh, agricultural adversary. They all need to be confronted in real time, especially where conversations are happening in social media, because it does make a difference. And so my interest has been, how do we train people to handle those situations correctly? That leads perfectly into the next question that I had for you, um, because those situations, especially where there's confrontation, can be challenging, uncomfortable, um, and hard to have. What do you? What advice do you recommend to your students to be able to put forth the facts to counteract a story um, that may not be a hundred percent accurate? Yeah, it's really easy, actually. And the number one thing is to always remember to stay on the high road. Um, It's about talking about values and big picture uh, issues. How do we relate to the common concerns that people have? The other important one is that the Internet is a spectator sport. And if you are engaging with somebody, you're being evaluated for your trustworthiness and for your message. And so to take on somebody who's being absolutely horrible with a good science hug to be able to uh, be kind and to be able to be empathetic to somebody who maybe just has bad information. Um, they, they may be victims themselves. Mm. So going in with that attitude is really good because it helps influence the people who are watching the conversation. For sure. Well, and I read um, that a few years ago you had been um you had received some personal attacks on work that you had done and in a video you just you mentioned that you were described as someone who was paid to lie about science um can you tell me a little bit about what that was like to to go through that and what you've learned kind of on the other side that will help our science communicators well what happened to me was kind of a perfect storm because it was during a time when things were a little bit different i don't know that the same thing could happen today back then there was a lot of discussion about the whole you know gmo labeling bills and scientists stepping into those conversations speaking about them as being unnecessary yet 
the activists that were running them were able to foment tremendous anger against scientists and uh, and especially those that were taking part in the conversation and changing hearts and minds. And I was targeted hard. And I tried to, as hard as I could, to share, you know, the, the message of science. Here's what the science says. Um, what they ended up doing was uh, gathering all my emails for so many uh, years and essentially constructing a narrative that fit their story, that you couldn't trust me. Mm. that I was just being paid to lie about science. And that was just horrible because overnight, everything you work for and your entire reputation evaporated. And you looked in the mirror and saw somebody who was not who they were talking about. And the internet went wild, everything went crazy, and it was pretty much, I felt, the end of my career. Mm. I, I can't even imagine to be you know, to have our, your character called into question, um, this, your whole life's work. Um, what kept you committed to the industry? Um, because you're still involved today and all of your, your hard work and your perseverance has been recognized with this distinguished service award. Well, I think the biggest thing I've learned from all of this, and especially with, um, with respect to how you survive it is got to be, you have to decide where you need to be in say one year, five years and 10 years to some people where I was, was where you would drop it and just say, forget it. I can't do this. And a lot of people do a lot of people back out of these conversations, but to me, it was too important. I don't think that you can walk away from telling the truth about agriculture um, at this point in history. It, it's too important. And I wanted to be involved in that. And so to press on and keep going was the only, only choice. And I'm sure your, your students um, in your classrooms today appreciate, you know, you sharing that experience and, and now offering to help them uh, move the conversation forward. In the, there's a video. Yeah, on that's the, where we are. There's a video on the um, AAEA website where you're interviewed uh, must be, be when you first got the award, and you mentioned that you've um, changed the way that you're involved in communication about agriculture by teaching the students. And so I was just curious, you know, what are a few of your favorite projects that you've seen come through students or something that's really innovative um, and reflective of the modern ag communicators? Yeah, I think, um, but it wasn't necessarily agriculture. It was more science communication. And some of my favorite projects, um, a pre-med student named Allie started Allie Answers, where she would answer your questions about the COVID-19 pandemic online. And she had an outstanding presence, both online as well as um, uh, through other media. I've worked with other students to write about golden rice and um, other students to work about very discrete aspects of plant biology. There's been a lot of projects that we've worked on. And it's kind of been a backdoor way for me to train more people in the proper way to communicate science and hopefully have some impacts. And that's been a really good thing for me. You know, I know you mentioned early on that you went to college to study science. Um, but again, in that video on the website, you mentioned that your, your passion for science actually started in your childhood uh, by talking with your father about atoms and um, the existence of matter. Um, and those are not necessarily <laughs> common household conversations at that age. I'm curious what your 
family setting or background was like that set those conversations in motion? Well, it was, um, it was interesting. I, I thought that it was, um, when I was a kid, there were always a lot of questions. Why did this work? Why did this work? And I used to sit with my great grandmother and talk to her about, you know, how did different things work? And she didn't have any idea really, <laughs> but she would entertain my dumb ideas. And that was really cool. My dad is an um, electrical genius and a guy who knows all about electronics. And he uh, started me at a very early age watching the space programs in the late 1960s, early 70s. And we watched science fiction and we watched science fact. And I knew all about lunar landers and about what was happening on the moon, um, the comets that were coming. These were things that we talked about all the time. But the watershed moment was a funny one. And Mr. Rogers, the guy who used to be on PBS, mm -hmm. was singing a song about something to do with water and said, you're bigger than the water. Mm. And I asked my dad, what does that mean? Bigger than the water. You got glass of water. You got a raindrop. You got the ocean. And he took a pen out of his pocket. He had a, one of those pocket protectors with a thousand pens and a bunch of these little screwdrivers. And he took out a pen and he popped out the t end and he said, in the tip of that pen, it's made up of these things called atoms, and there's more of them there than you could ever imagine. But they all have discrete qualities that give it, you know, the quality of the end of a pen. I remember that moment in time learning about atoms. I must have been three years old. I can't even imagine comprehending that as a three-year-old when I think back um, on my own childhood. That's amazing that it sparked this lifelong passion for you. <laughs> I was lucky to be in that environment. And it was always a given that I would go on to do something in science. And, you know, they, and I guess most parents kind of like to steer their kids sometimes towards medicine and stuff. And I kind of had that just a real, real natural interest in, in the natural world. So that was real, real um, obvious even from the time I was very small. That leads into another question that I wanted to ask you. Um, I'd heard that when you went to kindergarten, you were all excited to be a part of the science fair <laughs> until you learned that it wasn't available until fifth grade. So I was curious, you know, what your science fair project was when you fa finally got there and what was exciting about it? Um, yeah, that was a real, real funny thing because I was very excited about science fair. I was on fire about science fair. And when I found out they wouldn't let me in, I was just like crestfallen. It was just like, why bother going on? <laughs> <laughs> you know it's kindergarten there's no science fair for five more years that's like double my life and there's no why bother and mm -hmm. I, I just remember being just totally destroyed by that and um eventually my teacher mrs mutter figured out a way to get me in and they made an exception and i set up a diorama of the uh, charismatic megafauna of the cretaceous tertiary uh transition and um, it was it was <laughs> it was mostly dinosaurs. It was all uh, uh, dinosaur things, and I had a piece of a dinosaur bone that they loaned me from somewhere from one of the museums, and I had a backdrop. And there's some pictures somewhere of it that I'm trying to find, and I can't find them. But uh, it was really a big day for me. That sounds really fun. That reminds me of when I got to my fifth grade science fair. My father was a irrigation designer, so we built out. A golf course on a piece of plywood and put all the fairways and in the, the greens and and all of the pieces into it and it's uh, a fun thing to look back at your childhood and remember what those projects were like 
Yeah, it was pretty cool. I remember it being what was the most fun was the people being interested in the little nerd kid who was much smaller than everybody else and how enthusiastic I was to communicate the science of my project. So this is an old problem I've had. And it was really cool because I remember the people, the individual people thinking, you know, how cute that this kid is doing this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wonder if you're still the youngest one to participate to, to this day. I doubt it. You know, kids these days are really sharp and they get started even earlier. They're probably uh, kids who, I mean, I see kids who just, you know, amaze me. Uh, You know, college students who are way smarter and brighter than I was when I was their age, but even kids in grade schools were just, you know, just amazing. So it's it's a good time. It's a real good time. For sure. Um, I also just wanted to chat with you a few minutes about your family farm. Um, I read that um, your wife runs a farm. I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about what the specialty is and and what makes your farm unique to your family. Yeah, well, she does direct market produce. And so the big thing for us is coming up with uh, uh, things that are unusual and different and maybe a little bit out of season by extending season using horticultural practices. So she is a farmer from uh, from Ukraine originally, and uh, she grew up on a farm. And so she works with um, doing fruits and vegetables, but everything that's seasonal, just from greens, tomatoes, peppers, all that stuff. Um, we use a lot of high tunnel production. We do everything's irrigated. Everything's automated. We try to make it as easy for her as possible because it's just her. And she's a one-woman operation and amazing. But it's a lot of it's automation that allows it. But then we do a lot of interesting fruits. We have a grove of trees that do pears, peaches, mulberries, persimmons, um, a whole bunch of rather rare fruits. Um, we have some experimental avocados. We have some other stuff that we're working with. So a lot of um, diversity so that there's always something at the farm stand that's there. And uh, she does a lot of uh, livestock breeding for uh, for what do they call these things, for uh, heritage livestock, things like turkeys and different turkeys, chickens, ducks, geese, and cooney cooney pigs. Oh. So we got a lot of really cool stuff here. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a, a variety that you don't necessarily see on a lot of farms. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's very true. And it's, it's, but that's how it has to be when you're a one-person market that has to have something out there every week. And so she has duck and chicken eggs. She does all the different animals, and uh, which she breeds not for meat but for, for sale uh, pets or for breeding purposes. And then, um, and then uh, all the fruits and vegetables are pretty amazing. That three in her, every week, every Saturday morning, she's got stuff at the market that people have never seen before. And uh, it's really cool. It's really unique and allows her as a single person or as a, you know, as a, as a one woman operation to be competitive against a really aggressive market of people who have labor and everything else. Mm-hmm. Well, differentiation is the first step in that. And the other piece, as I hear you tell the story is, is the marketing and the storytelling piece of it. So I, do you um, overlap some of your, you know, college and communications background with helping her get the message out? Big time. Yeah. Her, her website is all about her story. Um, when she was a little girl, that um, the coolest thing that you would get as a surprise would be a banana because you never had bananas, you know, where she lived. 
And to just have this weird fruit that you would peel and have a thing inside was just amazing for her. But uh, she really misses the animals. She missed the, you know, the cows and pigs and things that they had there. And so when she started working here with me, um, you know, that or me working for her, <laughs> she uh, telling that story was an important part of, of her mission. And people really like that. They like the fact that she is um, an extremely dedicated professional in what she does and that she, when you buy it from her, you are meeting the producer. You know, you're, you're meeting the person that picked the seeds, that grew it, that did the weeding, did the picking, did the marketing. It's all her. And what advice can you often offer to listeners, um, you know, whether you're a pre-med student with the Ask Annie or somebody in farming, what advice do you offer for creating that genuine voice that allowed the customer to meet you as, as the person that you're putting forth? Yeah, it's all about authenticity authenticity and transparency and the idea of when you're engaging with people um, online for instance use your real name offer an email address where they can reach you um offer to talk to people on the phone i I do this all the time especially around issues like covid Um, the reason that's important is because even if that person never reaches out somebody else goes gosh they're giving their email address um and, you know, they must really be confident in what they're talking about or really know what they're talking about or really be worthy of my trust. And those kinds of things, that kind of authenticity goes a long way. Mm, for sure. People want to want to know who they're buying from and supporting and um, that it's a good cause and an authentic person behind there. But that's true whether you're selling fruits and vegetables or telling somebody about the technologies that are being used in agriculture both cases, they want to know that the person is the authentic person who is giving them information they can trust. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. For sure. I, and I feel like that's even more important in the times that we're living in where so much of our communication is done online and with um, COVID and social distancing, um, really making that connection is probably more important than ever. That's very true, and, and that's and that's the place where people are getting their news and having their conversations. So it's critical that we're in that space as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I was curious, um, you know, as we wrap up our conversation today, you know, I don't think anybody starts their career saying that they're going to um, aspire to earn a Distinguished Service Award, um, but their work, their hard work and commitment is rewarded over time. Um, but what closing pieces of advice would you offer to ag communicators um, to keep doing their best work and in, um, you know, creating a path that may be recognized down the road. And that's what it is. It's finding a distinct path and trying to come up with either a new medium. So these new channels are opening up all the time. You know, TikTok now allows these short things that I don't do that other people can slide right into. Um, there's YouTube, there's just exploiting video, there's ways of talking about the newest technologies, coming up with formats, understanding how the consumer consumes media. Those are the big challenges. And what you have to do, the best advice is don't just sit around and think about doing it and worrying about that it's not going to be perfect. If you do it, people will watch it. And you have to get in there and, and you know, make the first pancake. It's not going to be perfect. But the ones that follow will get gradually better. 
And it's so important just to break that seal and get the first one done. Because uh, once, once it gets going and you get a little momentum, it really does lift you. So get in there and get started. That's excellent advice. That's Getting started is always the hardest part of any project. <laughs> well, actually, true, and also sacrificing good enough for the perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if, it's, if it's good, most people are going to say, that's great. If you sit there and never release it because you want it to be absolutely flawless, then nobody ever sees it. You've got to get a product out there. And it's hard to remember that we are our own worst critics, um, that we will pretty much almost always be harsher on ourselves than than the people out consuming our content. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you for joining me on this episode of the podcast, and congratulations again on winning your award. Is there anything you'd like to add as we wrap up? Well, I just really would like to thank AAEA because that kind of uh, recognition is so important when you've been crushed online and you're, and I always describe myself as Google dead, the negative information that's out there that's false is so thick that it's going to take a few years of winning awards and creating good media to be able to overcome that. And that's why something like this says, look, you know, this guy's not who these, you know, radical weirdos say he is. Um, he's actually someone who cares about agriculture, cares about science, and is worried about telling the truth about the future of food. So this means a lot. What a great way to, to wrap up. Thank you. Oh, thank you. This is great. This has been an Ag Communicators Network podcast. Thanks for listening. And please visit us online at agcomnetwork.com for more great content.